I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here are your top five at five. Keep the records coming. The S&P and the Nasdaq once again reaching fresh highs, but the momentum facing some fresh resistance this morning. The Fed and potential new taper talk in focus for the markets as the central bank kicks off its now all-virtual Jackson Hole Summit. Our Steve Leisman is laying out what you need to watch. And Japan's order of more than one million doses of Moderna's vaccine now suspended amid contamination fears. And the Biden administration getting billions in commitments from the private sector as it looks to ramp up efforts to fight the growing threat of cyber attacks. And shares of Salesforce not slacking after its latest quarterly results. Get it? As the company boosts its outlook for the rest of the year, it is Thursday, August the 26th, 2021. And you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I'm Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. Here's how your money and the global markets are setting up their day. Futures right now, basically lower. The Dow pretty much flat, but the S&P and the NASDAQ down fractionally. Now, keep in mind, the S&P 500 crossed that 4,500 level for the first time ever yesterday before pulling back slightly to close at a new record. Much more on that with Craig Johnson in just a moment. The NASDAQ also notching a new record close. We're also checking treasuries as we gear up for the Federal Reserve's Jackson Hole Summit. The yield on the benchmark 10-year right now sitting at 1.354. It went as high as 1.35% yesterday during that session, so we're seeing it right back at the same level. Keep in mind, those yields on the 10-year, they've, they've risen 10 basis points since last Friday's close, so kind of a quick rise. So the record close on the S&P being fueled in part by some of those economic reopening names. Gambling stocks, among those seeing a big boost. Penn National up 18% so far this year. Big boost. Red Rock Resorts, DraftKings, Golden Nugget, all up 15% plus. We also have to throw in Caesars and Bally's up 14% and 11% respectively. But the action goes beyond those gambling names. Cruises, also getting a bit of a lift. Norwegian and Carnival up more than 9%. Royal Caribbean, you see, up almost 7%. Airlines also taking off. United, Delta, American, Southwest, and JetBlue, all of them up more than 8% so far this week. Uh, actually, we're seeing Delta right around 7.5%. Let's go worldwide right now. Jemana Bersecci, she's in our London newsroom with a look at the early trade over in Europe. Hey, Jemana. Hey, Frank. Well, the mood isn't that pretty today in Europe. You can see right behind me every single one of these European indices is trading in the red. A negative session after negative handover as well from Chinese equities. Remember, we're watching the Hong Kong situation very closely. So not a pretty handover. You can see the FTSE 100 in the UK down about half a percentage point. A couple of more companies are warning about supply bottlenecks. Yesterday, McDonald's were saying they were putting a freeze on milkshakes, pun intended there. Um, and Greg's today, one of the uh, food retailers, also warning about potential bottlenecks that's going to disrupt some of their production. So that has been weighing on some of the names in that basket. Cacahuant in France down about half a percentage point. Zetradax in Germany also down about two-thirds. All eyes on the political situation there with the center-left gaining some uh, steam in the polls. But also we're watching one name in particular today, and that is Deutsche Bank. And this is why U.S. authorities are reportedly investigating Deutsche Bank's asset management unit, DWS, for allegedly greenwashing its sustainable investing criteria. That is according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, the paper cites documents from the SEC where DWS's former sustainability head said the firm overplayed its ESG efforts to investors.
The SEC, Deutsche Bank and DWS have declined to comment on the report, but you can see a substantial decline in DWS today, down about 12 percentage points, Deutsche down 1.7 percentage points. Before we go, though, I do want to mention very quickly what we're seeing in European fixed income, because we had a massive move yesterday, Frank. We had yields move anything from 5 to 8 basis points higher across the European yield curve at two to three sigma event, and again, taking their cue from what's been happening in U.S. Treasuries, but also some concerns here about the fiscal outlook. As I mentioned in Germany, uh, the focus is going to be on those elections in a month's time. If it is a center-left-leaning government, maybe a more expansionary policy for the Eurozone as a whole. Yeah, Jermaine, I know a lot of bigger issues over there in Europe, but no shakes from McDonald's. Like, that just kind of shook me up. I love a good McDonald's <laughs> vanilla shake, even a shamrock shake. I don't know if they have those over there. I know. Europe. I know. I was very disappointed, too. I was very upset all of yesterday. <laughs> yeah, first world problems, though. Jumana Brissett <laughs> in our London newsroom. Thank you. Let's get a check on some of the morning's other top stories. Bertha Coombs has much more on those. Good morning, Bertha. Hey, good morning, Frank. Shares of Western Digital getting a big boost on word that it may be holding merger talks. According to reports, the data storage and information technology company is looking to join forces with Japanese chipmaker Kayaksha Holdings in a deal that could be valued at over $20 billion. The reported talks come just months after reports that both Western Digital and Micron Technology were looking into potential mergers with Kayaksha. The reports suggest discussions between Western Digital and Kayaksha have ramped up in recent weeks and a potential deal could come as early as mid-September. Japan, meantime, has suspended the use of more than a million and a half doses of Moderna's COVID vaccine. Health officials there cite contamination issues found in some doses in a batch of roughly half a million vials. Takeda Pharmaceutical, which sells and distributes the vaccine in Japan, says Moderna has made the move out of an abundance of cautions and cites an issue at the manufacturing site in Spain for the problem. Shares of Salesforce are getting a lift following second quarter results, topping expectations. Revenue increasing 23% year over year to $6.3 billion. The enterprise software maker is also raising its full year earnings guidance following its acquisition of Slack during the quarter. Speaking with Jim Cramer on last night's Mad Money, CEO Mark Benioff touted the deal. Our new user interface to all of our products so when we get to Dreamforce, you're going to see a whole new version of our sales cloud, which is built with a Slack user interface and a new version of our service cloud and a new version of our marketing cloud and commerce cloud. And, you know, it's an amazing product. And you look at the, you know, millions of users that are on Slack and the transformations that they've made in the workplace. Well, that's accelerated during the pandemic. And as we've moved to success from anywhere, Slack has become more important. Slack has become more important, although I will tell you, Frank, you know, I find some of our colleagues prefer Teams, and sometimes I have to remember who's on Slack, who's on Teams. It's kind of like one of those Abbott and Costello uh, routines. Or maybe Slack's become more important, but it's certainly not become more convenient because you got to check Slack, you got to check Teams, you got to check your email, your text messages. Lot to check. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. All right, turning our attention back over to the markets as the records keep coming with the S&P 500 crossing that 4,500 threshold for the very first time ever yesterday. But your next guest says it still has some more room to run. Craig Johnson is the chief market technician for Piper Sandler. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me back on the show. 
Hey, man, always great to have you. So I know you're pretty bullish on the S&P. You set a price target of 46.25, about a 3% upside from the level we're seeing right now. We're going to get to that in a moment. But first, I really want to talk to you about bond yields. Uh, they've ticked up almost 10 basis points since Friday's close right now at about 1.35, almost 1.36, a pretty rapid rise. How do you see that impacting the market? And of course, we have the Jackson Hole Summit coming up in just a few days. How do you see the market reacting between now and then? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting setup coming in the Jackson Hole, because if you look at the charts technically, uh, the 10-year bond yield at 1.36%, any sort of move above that would look like a uh, short-term bottom has been made. And in fact, the chart looks like a double bottom has been made on 10-year bond yields. And that move above 136, I think, would open the door for another leg higher. And that leg higher could push us up toward what we think could be a year-end objective, closer to 150 to 175 on the 10-year bond yield. Um, so from our perspective, this is probably going to be very good for the reflation trade uh, type names, names that you're mentioning here at the beginning of the show, Frank. So, Craig, you've been bullish on the S&P all year long. A lot of people have become, become a bit more bullish lately. The 51st record close uh, just yesterday compared to 35 record closes back in 2019. So the S&P is on fire. You initially had a price target of 44.25 for the S&P about halfway through the year. You raised it to 46.25. Are you planning any more revisions based on what we hear and see from Jackson Hole? You know, I want to take and let these numbers get hit. I was told a long time ago when I started in this business, let your price objectives get hit and then reevaluate at that point in time. But if you do step back and you look at the evidence of what you're seeing in the markets today, you do see that earnings estimates are nicely moving higher. You're, you're looking at numbers that have gone up substantially for 2021, and you're looking at numbers that could be as high as 250 for next year. Put all that together with the fact that we've got a, still a very accommodative Fed at this point in time, and I think that there still could be some upside from here. But right now, we're looking at 3% upside. And I'm going to be really interested as we go through the Jackson Hole and also the September FMOC meeting to see how this sort of transition takes place. Because the Fed has moved from what had been more of a uh, proactive type model to more of a reactionary type approach to dealing with uh, tapering and rates. And uh, I suspect there is opening the door there a little bit for some policy mistakes. And it'll be very interesting as we see the language coming out of Jackson Hole. If we get more of a tapering discussion, um, you know, I suspect rates are going to move up even faster than what they've been. And I suspect that could lean on the S&P 500 stocks. But, Frank, that very well could be a positive for the Russell 2000 stocks that have just been going sideways for months. You know, Craig, just to be clear, what would a policy mistake be in your mind? Is it acting too soon or too late or is it tapering at all? It could be either. I mean, moving too soon in the economy, you look at some of the uh, the numbers that have come out lately on the economy, it looks like things have slowed and eased a little bit despite all the stimulus that has been put in. Uh, or it could be that they act too late. I mean, this is a very difficult transition for the Fed to navigate and get this right, keep markets happy, keep the economy growing. I certainly don't envy, uh, you know, Powell, these decisions that they've got to make there with the Fed. It's a very uh, tightrope to deal with. And again, too early, too late has big consequences for the economy and certainly for equity markets. You know, Craig, I want to squeeze in one more question. Too. Oh, sorry about that. I want to squeeze in one more question. I know you're very also bullish on the Russell. The small cap index is more than double the market over the past week. A lot of financials in there, a bit sneaky, just really quick. Do you see the Russell rising because of reopening confidence or is it being boosted by those financials with the 10-year yield rising as well? 
You know, Frank, I think it's going to be the latter. I think as we see the 10-year uh, bond yield move up, net interest margins improve, and I think you're going to see uh, the banks move up for that reason. And uh, stocks in here like Bank of America look like we broke out, we've come back, check support starting to move higher again. So it's the latter, Frank. It's going to be about 10-year bond yields moving up, and that is a big component inside of the Russell 2000 index. Craig Johnson, we appreciate the insight as always. Thanks for being here. All right, when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, the rising threat of extreme weather forcing homeowners to take matters into their own hands when it comes to keeping the power flowing, the all-energy moves they're making to keep the lights on, plus the Biden administration racing to get hundreds of Americans in Afghanistan out with just days into the withdrawal deadline. We have the very latest from Washington. And later, dual earnings on tap from Dollar General and Dollar Tree, the one-two punch they're facing from the supply chain and from inflation a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. And welcome back. Well, extreme weather events across the U.S. are increasingly wreaking havoc on the country's electric grid. Consumers, they're now taking matters into their own hands as they look towards renewable sources to keep their, their power flowing. CNBC.com's Pippa Stevens is here with more. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Frank. Good morning. That's right. Again and again, we see that our grid just can't keep up with extreme weather events fueled by climate change. We've seen outages from California to Texas to New Jersey and everywhere in between. And consumers are fed up. New data from solar website SolarReviews.com clearly illustrates the link between extreme weather and people looking for ways to keep the lights on even when the grid goes down. The website saw a 358% increase year over year from California residents looking for a solar quote between June 30th and August 6th. The state, of course, facing devastating wildfires right now, as well as record drought and heat waves. And remember when temperatures rose to 116 degrees in Portland at the end of June? Well, Solar Review said quotes from Oregon jumped more than 900 percent as temperatures soared. And it's not limited to the West. When Texas experienced that deep freeze in February that cut power for millions of customers for multiple days, quotes from Texas residents spiked 850 percent. Now, we don't have exact data on how many of those requests turn into actual purchases, Frank, but it's clear that high-profile grid outages are definitely fueling interest. Yeah, I mean, you got my interest right now. So, Pip, a question for you, just listening to your report. If I get panels on my roof and then the grid goes down, am I good to go or is there more I have to do? Yeah, so that's a good point, and it's not quite as simple as that, of course. You have to have an on-site battery storage system as well for your lights to work if the central grid goes down. And that's because if there are line workers out repairing lines, you can't have power flowing back onto the grid because that would be a safety risk for the workers. And so what happens is you disconnect from the central grid and create your own nano grid, and then you are good to go. And this is a huge growth area for companies like Sunrun, Sonova, SunPower, SolarEdge, and Enphase. And Goldman Sachs said that the residential storage market will reach $1 billion for the first time next year. Uh, and I spoke to the CEO of SolarEdge last week, and he said that adoption rates are such that uh, as in the future, if you say you have a solar system, that will automatically mean that you have battery as well so that you can keep power if there are issues with the main grid. Uh, and he said that adoption rates are really growing here and that consumers are turning to storage-ready inverters, meaning that even if they aren't buying battery storage right now, it is on their horizon. Right. But, of course, demand is high, but supply is limited. Supply chain issues 
things that we've seen throughout the entire economy are also playing into solar here, Frank. Yeah, I'd imagine prices are pretty high, but who wants to go a couple days without power, without Internet, without TV? So got to pay the cost. Exactly. All right, Pippa Stevens, we appreciate it. Still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, finding some relief from sky-high home prices, how one CEO says crashing lumber costs could actually help would-be buyers' wallets. Today's big number, $357 billion. That's how much money has been saved in fees over the past 25 years as a result of passive investing, according to an estimate by S&P Dow Jones. All right, welcome back. The Biden administration has said that as many as 1,500 Americans still need to be evacuated from Afghanistan, stressing that number is actually pretty hard to pin down. The race to get those citizens out comes with just days until the August 31st deadline to withdraw U.S. forces from that country. NBC News' Jay Gray is live in Washington with the very latest. Good morning, Jay. Hey, good morning, Frank. You know, as we get closer to that end-of-the-month deadline, it's clear tension is building in Afghanistan. And it also appears the Taliban is now tightening its grip, at times uh, actively and violently stopping Afghans from leaving the country. This is the evacuation by the numbers. Five days left. And according to the State Department, roughly 1,500 Americans still in Afghanistan. 500 have received instructions on how to get to the airfield. But officials are still trying to make contact with around 1,000 U.S. citizens still on the ground. We're aggressively reaching out to them multiple times a day through multiple channels of communication. As huge crowds continue to gather, it's impossible to put a number on the Afghans desperate to leave. Overnight, the State Department issuing a security alert, calling the situation at the Kabul airport dynamic and volatile. It is not an airport. It is a frontline war. I've been in the war a lot. I've seen a lot of fires. I've seen a lot of gunfires and stuff like this with the Americans. i never seen something like that. Never. Rafi Azim is a former U.S. military interpreter. He lives in Texas now, but went back to Afghanistan earlier this month to help move his family to Kabul, where he thought they'd be safe. But as the Taliban took control... My youngest brother called me. He's like, run. What do you mean, run? He's like, run, Kabul collapse. Azim knew they had to get out. After three days, they finally made it onto a U.S. military transport, leaving behind friends, family, and a country in turmoil. Yeah, now administration officials continue to stress that they will do whatever is necessary to get Americans or Afghans who've worked alongside U.S. forces out of the country, regardless of any deadline, Frank. So, Jay, you kind of touched on this just a second ago, but yeah. do we know any more about what will happen to any Americans that are still on the ground in Afghanistan after that August 31st deadline? Yeah, and that's the rub, right? Uh, we pushed administration officials on that. What they're saying is that the Pentagon, as well as the State Department, is coming up with contingency plans uh, if there is a need to extend the timeline. Obviously, they're not going to discuss that strategy, but they do say something is in place. We know that they are asking neighboring countries to continue flights into the Kabul airport, even after the Americans leave, hoping to keep that airport open and functioning. You know, a concerning and developing situation. Jay Gray, thank you for the latest. 
All right, let's now get a check on some of the other headlines outside the business world. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the very latest. Great to see you, Francis. Hey, Frank, always good to see you. And good morning to you. We start with the smoke from the Caldor Fire that's creating hazardous air conditions for Lake Tahoe. The wildfire has scorched more than 100,000 acres. Residents are being urged to stay indoors if possible. Two Western lawmakers are calling on President Biden to declare a drought disaster in the West as record temperatures and fast-growing wildfires ravage multiple states. The lawyers who tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Michigan are facing serious sanctions this morning. In a scathing decision, a federal judge recommended disbarment for all nine attorneys who tried to flip the state for former President Trump. That includes Trump's lawyers, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood. In addition to financial penalties, the judge also ordered them to receive 12 hours of legal education, half of which will specifically focus on election law. Two more star players are withdrawing from the U.S. Open. The Williams sisters, Serena and Venus, both announced they would not play in the tournament, which begins next week. Serena cited her torn hamstring as a reason for not playing, and Venus says she's dealing with a leg injury. It is the first time since 2003 that neither Williams sister will play in the U.S. Open. Frank, so in addition to the sisters you added that, there's Roger Federer, you got Rafael Nadal, and also Dominic Thiem all sitting out this year's Open, so a very different dynamic at this year's U.S. Open. People coming out there and, and not expecting to see uh, these prayers or the action that they have, but I'm sure they're just glad to be there. Francis, I think you said that the nicest way possible. This U.S. Open's missing a whole lot of star power. I know, I know. But, you know, again, people are just, like, happy to be out and yeah. watching live sports in this capacity. But, again, not the same without these names. Yeah, also an outdoor event, so, you know, mm -hmm. at least perceived to be a little bit safer. So hopefully yeah. it'll still be a, a, a great, uh, what is it, a tennis tournament? I'm not a big tennis fan, but I know a lot of yeah. the stars aren't going to be there. I can figure that part that, out. Yeah, Francis that's, the, that's the big news, yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, mm -hmm. still on deck. The Biden administration reportedly set to shift the timeline for when Americans should get their booster shots. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back. Stocks fighting to keep hitting fresh record highs. That may be a challenge today with the futures facing pressure ahead of the open. And investors gearing up for the Fed's Jackson Hole Summit to formally kick off. Our Steve Leisman is standing by with what investors need to watch in the now virtual gathering. And some of the country's biggest companies opening up their wallets to help the Biden administration combat the growing threat of cyber attacks. It is Thursday, August the 26th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back. I'm Frank Collin in for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. Here's how your money and investments look right now as we're halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Futures in the red across the board. All three of them down right now. The Dow down slightly. The S&P and the Nasdaq also down fractionally. Now, this comes after the S&P 500. It crossed the 4,500 level for the first time ever yesterday before pulling back slightly to close at a new record. The Nasdaq also notching another record close. Also checking treasuries as we gear up for the Fed's Jackson Hole Summit. Investors obviously watching that very closely. The yield on the, the benchmark 10-year Treasury note climbing to as high as 1.35% during yesterday's session. And right now we're looking at it. It's back up to that level right now at 1.351. You have to keep in mind, the yield on the 10-year has risen about 10 basis points from Friday's close. And taking a look at some of the names in the cybersecurity sector, a very solid week so far. Palo Alto up more than 20%. Mimecast up 15% with CrowdStrike climbing 14%. 
SecureWorks and Okta both up 13%. And let's stick with cybersecurity as we get some of this morning's top headlines. Our Bertha Coombs is back with those. Hey again, Bertha. Hey, Frank. Leaders from some of the country's biggest companies are committing billions to help strengthen cybersecurity. President Biden meeting with CEOs from Apple, Microsoft, Google, IBM, JP Morgan, and Bank of America, among others, yesterday to discuss the matter following several high-profile attacks in recent months. Microsoft committing $20 billion over five years to deliver more advanced security tools, while Google is pledging $10 billion over the same period to strengthen cybersecurity. That company, along with IBM, saying they'll train 100,000 Americans or more each in fields such as IT and data analytics. Meantime, the Biden administration is also apparently shifting the timeline now for when Americans may be able to get their COVID booster shots. According to the Wall Street Journal, regulators are likely to suggest fully vaccinated adults should get a third shot six months after their previous doses, rather than eight months previously announced by the White House. The journal says the potential move stems from data by vaccine manufacturers and other countries under review by the FDA based on a six-month timeline for boosters. And the CEO of Toll Brothers says the dramatic drop in lumber prices in recent months is set to provide some relief for the housing sector. Speaking with Jim Cramer on last night's Mad Money, Doug Yearly says that drop could save roughly $40,000 per home for his company. The tailwind of lumber coming down is very comforting. It's going to help us. It's going to help drive some margin, but I think it's going to also help offset some of the other cost increases that we're feeling. It's taken us a little longer to build these houses. You know, there's real supply chain issues. There's labor issues. It took about two weeks longer in our third quarter to deliver a home. We expect that to continue for a couple of more quarters as we manage through it. Well, Frank, I guess lumber prices really were transitory when it comes to lumber inflation. I'm not sure about anything else at this point, but certainly true for lumber. Great. You know, Bertha, fantastic segue. Speaking of a transitory inflation, and thank you for that report, <laughs> the Fed is in focus today as policymakers convene virtually for the central bank's annual Jackson Hole Summit. And our Steve Leisman, he joins us now with a look at what investors want to hear from Jay Powell. And it's kind of a drinking game these days, uh, Steve. How many times the word transitory inflation is going to come up? Yeah, it's a little early for that drinking game, but perhaps later this afternoon. It's worldwide it exchange. There's other uh, parts. Got to do what you can, Frank. But the Fed's annual Jackson Hole Conference, as you know, is supposed to begin this evening in Wyoming. Instead of meeting in person in the shadows of the Tetons, well, they're going to meet virtually starting tomorrow in the shadow of a resurgent coronavirus and, of course, pressing questions about the economy and monetary policy. It's a virtual meeting, but with real issues. The topic of the conference is the uneven economic recovery. But that's just one issue for the Fed right now. Uh, they face the task of figuring out the right policy with the Delta variant on the rise, inflation spiking, job growth. It's quite strong right now. And then the issue of fiscal versus monetary policy. And, of course, questions about whether to keep those $120 billion of asset purchases going every month. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Fed asset purchases now rising at that pace of $120 billion a month, they've more than doubled the size of the Fed's balance sheet from $4 trillion, almost $8.3 trillion. 
Just before the Delta outbreak became a concern a week or so ago, several Fed officials began to call for an early end to those purchases, asking if they were just making the inflation problem worse. Now the Fed is locked into a place where a meaningful number of its members question the policy, but changing that policy amid the uncertainty of the Delta variant, well, it carries risks, of course. It's a difficult place for Fed Chair Jay Powell, whose speech Friday is going to be closely watched by the market. Among his choices, he could come out and be more hawkish, saying, giving a strong hint of that September taper announcement. He could end up being neutral, suggesting the taper announcement is likely after several more months of data. And the most dovish thing he might say is repeating what he said at the press conference in July, that we're still some ways away from the substantial further progress needed to taper. I think the most dovish scenario is the least likely, but it's hard to know where he'll land between the neutral and hawkish options. A lot will depend on his sense of where the committee is. And we're going to get a firsthand read of that right here on CNBC today and tomorrow. We have extensive interviews with Fed officials here on CNBC beginning this morning at 7.30. We have Esther George, the Kansas City Fed president. That's the way we traditionally kick off our coverage here. And we have Jim Bullard also at 8.30. Robert Kaplan coming up in Squawk on the street. And then tomorrow, Bostic from Atlanta, Harker from Philly, and Mester from Cleveland, along with, by the way, we don't have it there, Rich Clarida, the vice chair of the Fed. Frank? So, Steve, i got to ask you, how does fiscal policy change the calculation of what the Fed is going to do? Yeah, you know, no rest for the weary, Frank. Uh, you know, it looks like they're moving ahead with some form of that $3.5 trillion. Some of that is paid for when it's paid for. In other words, you take taxes out of the economy, the Fed sees it less as direct stimulus, but not all of it is. Plus, you've got a lot of other fiscal policy coming down in the form of infrastructure out there. So it's a moving target, Frank. And there are some folks on the Fed who think, you know what, policy should be reacting to this fiscal surge. What If, if, if the fiscal side does more, then it makes sense for the monetary policy side to be doing less. All right, Steve, looking forward to those interviews. And by the way, I'm going to stick to water. I got my water bottle right here, but it is after 5 p.m. in Tokyo, Steve. Don't give people a hard time in Tokyo if they want to play a drink Frank, game. Frank, whatever's, what, what, whatever's in that bo bottle right there is between you and your maker. We don't have to know, <laughs> Frank. I promise it's water, Steve. I promise. All right. Steve Leisman, thanks I'll for that. Okay. All right, coming up, inflationary pressures, price hikes, and the consumer. What quarterly numbers from Dollar Tree and Dollar General could tell us about the economy. But first, as we head to break, some of your other top business stories. Microsoft hiring former Amazon cloud exec Charlie Bell. No official word on what his new job will be, but Microsoft's Azure cloud business has been fighting to take market share from Amazon Web Services. U.S. regulators are reportedly investigating Deutsche Bank's asset management arm. The Wall Street Journal notes the probe comes after the firm's former head of sustainability said the division overstated how much it used sustainable investing criteria to manage assets. And South Korea becoming the first developed economy to hike interest rates in the pandemic era. The 25 basis point increase, it was expected. Stay tuned. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Worldwide Exchange, a live look right now here at Times Square. This area getting more lively as we go. Delta variant concerns obviously slowing some of the reopening, but seeing more and more people in New York City for the people who live here in the area. All right, time now for your big money movers. Four stock stories of this morning. Stock one that's up, 
Snowflake, that stock actually up almost 2.5%. The cloud data software company reporting better than expected second quarter results as both total revenue and product revenue, it doubled. Snowflake is also raising full-year guidance for product sales for a second time. Stock two, Ulta Beauty having a beautiful morning. That stock up just about 5%. The retailer reporting second quarter sales jumped more than 60% as shoppers restock their makeup bags and their cabinets. Ulta is also raising its guidance for the year, expecting that strong demand to continue. Stock three, Box, down about 3%. Shares are lower despite the company posting second quarter profit and revenue that actually beat estimates. Box did report preliminary numbers two weeks ago to give shareholders time to review its financials ahead of a vote next month over control of its board. The company has been in dispute with activist investor Starboard, Starboard Value. Stock four, Williams & Sonoma, to up double digits. The houseware retailer reporting better than expected second quarter results. The company doesn't expect the strong growth trends to let up anytime soon. It's also hiking its quarterly dividend by 20%. Two names that are also in on investors' radars ahead of the open. Discounters, Dollar General and Dollar Tree. You see shares of both of them up right now. Supply chain issues have been hitting retail across the board this earnings season. And these two, they may also be getting a double whammy from inflation pressures as well. Joining me now, Jerome Martis, Director of Consumer Research at Refinitiv. Good morning, Jerome. Good morning, Frank. How are you doing? All right. Well, both of the, I'm doing pretty good. Both of these stocks, they have earnings coming up later today. What are you expecting and how big of an impact will inflation have on these two companies? Well, the second quarter retail data is showing that consumers are still very much value-oriented. But it, without a doubt, the child tax credit is definitely helping the low-income consumer the most because they are the ones that are facing higher price costs without any wage increases. So as a result, they really can't afford buying traditional groceries at the regular supermarkets, but instead have to go to the dollar stores in order to buy food and basic necessities. And because of the strong demand, we're seeing that stores like Dollar General are expected to open over a thousand stores this year alone and to renovate over 1,700 while continue to expand their grocery offerings throughout these stores, which is a positive move that Refinitiv looked, uh, data shows that it's working towards the company's benefit. You know, Jerome, you're mentioning grocery. Another big thing that people are buying right now is back to school items, whether it be clothing or notebooks or laptops. I actually did a report about this a short time ago. Overall, back-to-school shopping has increased 40% year-over-year, with apparel having one of the biggest increases, over 70%. Is that actually a catalyst for these discount retailers? Because things are more expensive maybe at a Macy's or, you know, maybe even a Target, but they're obviously very uh, generally cheaper at a dollar store. So for a store like Dollar General and Family Dollar, they're just passing on those higher costs to the consumer because they know that they're receiving the child tax credit right now. But for a store like Dollar Tree that sells everything for a dollar, that's a whole different story. They tend to substitute their goods, the national goods, for their own store brands in order to maintain those costs very low. And they're being they're coming a little bit more savvier in what in their strategy. They're introducing something called Dollar Tree Plus where they allow a small portion of their store to sell items from their family dollar um, subdivision. And these items are priced between 3 to $5. And Frank, some of these items are very cool. They have like vintage MTV shirts, um, Star Wars, and even Snoopy shirts that are flying off the shelves. So as you can see, retailers are not lazy about their survival. They're trying different strategies in order to stay relevant in a time when there's higher, higher inflation. 
you know, higher inflation obviously hitting people across the board. Um, you've also mentioned another company that people don't really think of as a discount retailer, but when it comes to apparel, they are a discount retailer, and that's Target. Have some of these inflationary pressures driven people towards that big box store? And to your point earlier, like you were saying that Ulta Beauty um, posted very strong earnings. They're not only just buying apparel, but they're also buying beauty items at Target. Target has become the one-stop shop and has stolen a lot of the market share, especially during the pandemic from the department stores. And this is the one store that consumers are coming towards because they know that they can buy fashionable merchandise for, for way less than at a department store. And it's resonating very well because it's not, we're saying that there's repeat business from the consumer. So as a result, Target is one of the favorites, not only for back to school, but um, for the upcoming holiday season. So I have to ask you about the long-term strategy for uh, Dollar Tree or Dollar General. They generally don't sell things online. Um, right now, we obviously have a lot of Delta variant concerns. Could that potentially be a headwind for these companies, the fact that they don't really have e-commerce offerings? It wasn't a headwind for them during the pandemic, and this is mainly because the low-end consumer really cannot afford to shop anywhere else. So as a result, they know that if they they still have to eat, they still have to buy groceries. So as a result, they do know that the consumer will be coming to their stores and visiting them despite the Delta variant. So they're a little bit more, in general, the, the discounters are more Delta-proof than compared to the other retailers within uh, th this earnings season or throughout the pandemic. They've shown us that they have consistently done well no matter how the pandemic has fared. You know, very interesting. And their growing grocery business, also very interesting. Um, is it comparable to what you might find in a supermarket? Are supermarkets going to feel some pressure from these lower to middle-income consumers going to a Dollar Tree, perhaps, and making that a one-stop shop? Absolutely. And in fact, because of the so many dollar stores being surrounded by some of these supermarkets um, and the consumer going to the low end consumer gravitating towards the dollar stores, it's actually taken a lot of supermarkets out of business um, because they just can't afford in, in these low rural, rural areas to pay higher prices. Um, the convenience of their location is also a big factor for the dollar stores. Uh, dollar General, for example, is located within five miles of 75% of the U.S. population and therefore also causing them to have a very loyal customer base that knows that they are in the neighborhood and they can go and, and buy their groceries for lower cost prices. Jerome Artis from Refinitiv. Great insights as always. Thank you for being here. On deck Thank here on Worldwide Exchange, what investors want to hear from this week's high stakes Fed Summit and why our next guest says, well, some of you may actually be a little bit disappointed. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, Big Papa Brian Sullivan, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange will be right back. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. To borrow from Shakespeare, to taper or not to taper? That is the question. I'm, I'm going to stop there. I do know the rest. Uh, it is the question for the Fed this week as they meet virtually for the annual Jackson Hole Symposium. Your next guest falls in the, the latter camp, saying Jay Powell is unlikely to provide a tapering roadmap to investors when he speaks tomorrow. Patrick Frizzetti is the managing director and partner at Rose Advisors at Hightower. Patrick, thanks for being here. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me. So that's the question we borrowed from Shakespeare there, to taper or not to taper. I have to ask you, do you see some more comments about definitive tapering coming up from when Jay Powell speaks on Friday? And how does the fact that Jackson Hole is virtual this year and also the, the rising yields in the 10-year, how does that impact what you believe he's going to say? 
Yeah, sure. Look, I think everyone will be following uh, Powell's comments very closely. Um, however, I don't know if it'll really provide a roadmap. I mean, the reality is that there's still a concern that the Delta variant is either going to make any QE taper a painful and, and brief event uh, by the Fed, or it'll force the Fed to push out the QE taper even further. Honestly, Robert Kaplan of the, of the Dallas Fed, if you think of his comments recently, um, I, I would say that the signpost is is for the, for the latter to happen. Um, and as he said, the Jackson Hole meeting itself switched from virtual to in-person. So my gut tells me that the Fed uh, seems to think they have more runway than they actually do. You know, one of the things the Fed's been watching is the labor situation. I know you're watching it as well. Um, how do you see some of the cost inflation that's being driven by wage inflation impacting the markets, maybe even impacting what the Fed has to say? I know you've been keeping your eye on what a lot of people are calling the great resignation. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, I would, you know, it's, it's very interesting because they have to deal with, um, you know, this potential issue of inflation, as everyone knows. And I think that, um, you know, the, the market itself is under underestimating the inflationary impact. Uh, the labor market. You know, the Washington Post recently conducted a poll um, where nearly a third of U.S. workers under the age of 40 it has thought about changing careers during the pandemic. And as you say, people are referring to this, um, you know, th this event in, in the labor market as the great resignation. Uh, you know, it really, the COVID triggered this great, you know, reassessment of work and life. Um, and, and honestly, I would add one thing. Um, you know, I think it's further compounded by the fact uh, that, you know, the vaccine mandates may actually have an impact on the labor market as well. Um, rightly or wrongly, of course, um, there will be people who reconsider based on vaccine mandates over the next four to eight weeks, whether to also reassess their current roles. Um, so I think it's going to put pressure on the labor market. It's going to potentially increase, uh, you know, wage pressure, of course. And again, this this idea of the great resignation will be something to really follow closely. You know, interesting thought there. Um, a lot of uh, the catalyst for the market so far has been the idea of strong earnings from different companies. I'm seeing some stats right here from different analysts. Looks like EPS is up more than 90 percent this quarter, revenue up more than 25 percent. But we are seeing a yeah. lot of earnings revisions slowing down. How do you see that yeah. impact in the market? Is there any one sector that you're eyeing that you see that earnings strength continuing throughout the rest of the year? Yeah, sure. So, look, earnings revision breadth, as they call it, um, is a very important indicator to watch. And, and in August, it was down month over month. And so it could certainly portend to some weakness ahead or some volatility. Um, I actually think it could, could be a catalyst for some market weakness. You know, whenever there's volatility, um, you know, there's some segment of your portfolio that you want to be uh, defensive yet opportunistic. One of the most defensive sectors um, so far this year has been in the healthcare space. Because if you think about that inflationary pressure we were talking about, um, you know, they have the ability to pass along costs. When you think about pharma uh, or med, med devices, um, it's a great stable performer uh, when you think about a sector overall. Specifically, you know, a, a blue chip pharma company like, like Bristol-Myers, um, we like, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's relatively uh, stable performer, but also, um, appears relatively cheap um, on on all metrics, certainly on an earnings multiple. It's trading uh, roughly 10 times or, or slightly lower and pays a good dividend and has a very good balance sheet with really a pretty decent pipeline in the oncological space. 
You know, Patrick, we're almost out of time, but I want to talk to you about one more thing, uh, the rising bond yields. Financials, actually the best performing sector this month. How do you mm -hmm. see financials playing out for the rest of this year, and how do you see what's coming up in Jackson Hole very quickly impacting that sector? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as, as yields rise, you know, you could see a little bit of a bump in the financial space. Um, but honestly, that's that's a sector I've avoided. There's, um, you know, so far this year, I know it's it's been obviously a pretty decent performer, but I don't know if necessarily you'll see the yield curve steepening in all of this. Um, I just don't know if that's going to be reality. And that's something to really, you know, follow closely when you're looking at the financial space. But it's been a space that we've avoided thus far this year. All right, Patrick Frazetti, we appreciate the insight. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thanks right. for having me. Thank you. One last look at the markets before we begin. Futures in the red across the board. The NASDAQ taking the biggest hit at this moment. Something to watch as the markets open up in just about what? Two and a half hours? Actually, four hours. What, what kind of math am I doing? I'm glad the producer just, just corrected me. Four hours. It's early, guys. All right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.